Well, over the last three weeks, we have been looking at the, the role of the prophets in calling the people of Israel back to their one true love. Uh, they were often given the task of announcing bad news, and they seem kind of cranky and hard for us moderns to read and to appreciate. But the prophets were also called to announce hope. And we saw that last week in the prophet Isaiah. And, and we've learned that the prophets were not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. And even today, I believe that the church has prophets. Today, I want us to look at two of the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah and Habakkuk. But first of all, a spoiler alert. If you have not yet seen the movie 1917 and you plan on it, uh, you might want to put your fingers in your ears for the next couple of seconds. Uh, the movie is set in France during World War I, and two British soldiers, Corporals Blake and Schofield, are given the orders to carry a communication to the 2nd Battalion on the front lines. British intelligence has learned that uh, what looks like a retreat by the Germans is a trick. And the two soldiers must get to the commanding officer and warn him about the attack before the next day. These two soldiers go through hell. No man's land. Barbed wire and trenches and snipers and burning towns. Blake is killed and dies in the arms of his companion and friend. And Schofield is devastated, but he refuses to give up, and he continues his mission, his journey. He jumps into a, a raging river uh, to save his life, swims through a mass of dead bodies, climbs up out of the river with no idea where he is, and believing that he has failed his mission and is too late to stop the impending massacre, he breaks down and he cries. He realizes that he is in a hopeless and impossible situation. Well, Judah and Israel find themselves in a hopeless situation as well. One bad king follows another until finally the northern kingdom of Israel is destroyed by the Assyrians. Judah lasts a little bit longer and has some good kings. Hezekiah brings reform and a much-needed spiritual revival. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, you can walk through a tunnel that he built to bring water into the city during a siege that is an absolute engineering marvel. But he is followed by his son Manasseh, who is said to have done more evil than any of the other kings in fact, 2 Kings chapter 2 says that he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood from one end to the other. And you have to wonder, how does that happen, to have such a godly father and then go in the exact opposite direction? His son, Josiah, tries to bring renewal, but it is too late. The nation is too far gone, and it is hopeless. God continues to send prophet after prophet to warn them of impending judgment if they do not change their ways. They predict the great day of the Lord is coming, a day of judgment, and they will be swept away from the face of the earth. 
But nobody, nobody is listening. Now, one of those prophets is a man named Habakkuk. But his beef is not with the people. It's with God. And he begins his book by complaining to God. He says, God, why will you not listen? I look around at my world and I see wrongdoing and trouble. I see destruction and violence and wickedness and evil seem to be winning the day. Why, God? So what theological question is he wrestling with here? He's looking at God's providential care. And he's beginning to wonder if God is in control of the universe after all. He's looking at his world and he get, just cannot see God's hand in it. But God answers him. He says, I'm about to do something about it. And I can imagine that Habakkuk takes a sigh of relief. But then he gets another shock. God says, I'm going to use the Babylonians to defeat the wicked. And Habakkuk, he goes off the deep end. Verse 13, why do you look on the treacherous and are silent when the wicked swallow those more righteous than they? In other words, he's saying, God, you, you can't do that. How can you partner with wicked Babylon to punish those who are more righteous than they? Why is it that those who are evil appear to be more successful than those who are striving to live morally, righteously, and godly? Why does wrong triumph? You see, he sees the, the ruling elite of his country oppressing the poor and the weak, and he wonders where God is. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? You ever ask God that question? I imagine we all have. He goes on, he says, to God, why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Habakkuk challenges God. He says this. He says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. That would have been on the city walls. He says, I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. You see, he really wants to hear God. He wants to hear God's voice. And you have to admire his courage. He says, God, I need an answer. This doesn't make any sense to me. He's looking for some clarity. And isn't it nice to know that it's okay that we can do that too? That God doesn't mind. In fact, God wants to speak to us. And he speaks to the prophet, and this is what he says. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end, and it will not prove false. Though it linger, he says, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. So the prophet begins with, with anger, with what he sees. He's angry with God, but God gives him this vision. God gives him a, a vision of a world of justice and righteousness. And God says, don't worry, it will come. It may tarry, but it will come. And God helps the prophet to move from, from anger to hope. And so that whatever the outcome might be, whatever happens, though the fig tree does not blossom, though fields um, yield no food, whether there's too much rain or not enough rain, Habakkuk is going to trust in the Lord and he's going to rejoice in God. In the midst of judgment, God always offers 
his people hope. Always. Well, there was another prophet who was a contemporary of Habakkuk called Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet because rather than using fire and brimstone on his hearers like the other prophets, Jeremiah's heart was broken for his nation. And so chapter 9 begins, Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. God calls Jeremiah to be a prophet while he's still in his mother's womb. By the time he is, he is 19 or 20, barely out of his teens, God calls him to be a prophet, but he's reluctant to answer the question or the call. He says, God, I don't know how to speak. I'm too young. Find somebody else, God, to do it. But God responds, do not say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you and to say whatever I command you. And don't worry that they're not listening. Don't be afraid. And so for the next 50 years, Jeremiah warns his nation. He tells them they're on the road to disaster, but no one's listening. He is publicly humiliated when they put him in the stocks. Then he's thrown into a cistern where he's left to die. There are false prophets who claim that he is lying, and they use political pressure to shut him up. He tells the king of Jerusalem to surrender to Babylon, who's laying siege to the city and is accused of being a traitor to his country. Until finally his prophecies come true. King Zedekiah tried to rebel against a Babylonian rule. In a two-year siege, Nebuchadnezzar overruns Judah, sacks Jerusalem, tears down the walls, burns the palace and the temple, much of the city, and then takes the rest of the population into exile. And it's within this context that Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations. And my friends, it is one of the most depressing books in the Bible. <laughs> if you've been having a, ha a bad day, don't go reading the book of Lamentations. It will make you feel worse. It's raw and it's angry. And in chapter 3, Jeremiah begins by bitterly blaming all of this on God. He says, God, you have done this. You have driven me into darkness. He says, God has made my flesh and my skin waste away. God has broken my bones. God has put heavy chains on me. I mean, that's heavy stuff. And then he ends by saying, my soul has no peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. You ever gone through such a rough time in life, you forgot what it means to be happy? That's exactly where Jeremiah finds himself. I mean, he's in a serious depressive state. He's at the very bottom of life, and he's looking around for a way out, and there isn't any. Every door is locked and bolted. He can't get out. At least that's what you would think until you read verse 21. Quite unexpectedly, there's this reversal of everything that Jeremiah is feeling. And he says this, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Listen, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Therefore I will hope in him. What? 
has changed. Well, nothing has changed. This life situation is still the same. But he remembers God's love, and, and while everything else in his life is falling apart, he believes that God's love never does. And Jeremiah in this reminds us that in God's world, there is always hope for the hopeless. Now, we need to hope, don't we? I mean, to be human is to be in trouble. As soon as my two children learned how to crawl, they went looking for trouble. And they found it a lot. Job said, we are born to trouble as sparks from the fire fly upward. And that gets us in trouble and we suffer. And that we all share in common. You see, throughout history, people of faith have had to struggle with this issue. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself in real danger of leaving the faith, of abandoning my commitment to Christ, of, of giving up because life just seems too tough. But the Bible always deals with our suffering in a very straightforward way. There's, there's no attempt to hide suffering. There's no, there's no attempt to hush it up or to, to lock it in a closet because suffering should never happen to, to good people, to people of genuine faith. There's never an attempt to theolo, theolo, theologize our misfortune. There's no hasty band-aids. There's no quick cures. We're not told to go take a vacation or, 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 or to go get a hobby. <laughs> The Bible just says to hope in God's love. So what in the world is hope? And how do we define it? Well, I might say something like, I hope the Bengals will be in the Super Bowl next year. But is that really hope? Or is that more akin to fantasy? You see? That was a cheap shot, wasn't it? I'm sorry. <laughs> Friends, the Bible knows, knows nothing of that kind of hope. Uh, do you know that hope never appears in the Bible as an adverb or as an adjective, like hopeful or hopefully? In fact, the Bible uses the word hope in such, the, uh, such an objectively certain way that it is virtually synonymous with destiny. It, it is something that, that will most assuredly happen. And so biblical hope is, it's God-grounded, it's God-sustained, it's God-directed. In fact, the Bible calls God the God of hope, the source of hope, and the author of hope. The Bible teaches us that the hope does not disappoint, that it is, it is this unshakable confidence, that it causes us to rejoice, that it gives us boldness, that it, it thrives on trials and sufferings, that it rests upon the very promises of God. Indeed, there is no hope apart from God. So what are these promises of God? There are three that we find in Romans 5 that I just want to briefly talk about. And the first, let's listen to Paul's letter, Romans 5. This is what he says. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. So the first thing that we learn about, the, about hope 
is that it gives us peace. Now, folks, worry and anxiety seem to be uh, the order of the day. But when our hope is fixed on God, the Bible promises us this peace. So it's simply this alert, confident expectation that, that God will do what he promises to do. That he does it in his own way and he does it in his own time, but he will come through during our time of waiting. And this kind of calmness comes out of this deep trust in God that is firmly rooted in this firm foundation of hope. Not that nothing bad will ever happen to us, but whatever the outcome, God has not left us or given up on us. And that, Paul says, is what gives peace in the human heart. The second thing that hope does is give us unshakable confidence. Verse 5, Paul says, hope does not disappoint us. So hope believes in the future. Hope has this ability to, to lift us from business as usual into uh, the realm of what can be. Hope fixed on the promises of God embraces a, a high expectation of the future. I'm not talking about human dreams. I'm not talking about wishes or whims, I'm talking about what is possible in Christ. Paul uses Abraham as an illustration. He says, hoping against hope, Abraham believed that he would become the father of many nations, according to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, listen, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So Abraham looked at the facts. Sarah and I are too old to have children. Those facts are non-negotiable. Can't be changed. But then he looked at the promise of God. You'll be the father of a nation. And he chose to believe God rather than the facts. And then finally, Paul says, hope gives us endurance. Verse 3, suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces what? Hope. Now, endurance is a, a virtue that is lacking in our culture, wouldn't you agree? I'm an impatient person. I easily give up when my needs are not instantly gratified. I don't like to wait, do you? I hate long lines. And normally when, when we get delayed, what do we do? We get irritated, right? We get irritated. That teenage son or daughter coming home past curfew. Your spouse keeps you at the shopping mall longer than what they promised. The time between a biopsy and a call, phone call with the results. Those are all some unpleasant experiences. But Psalm 130 gives us some much needed advice. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. So you see, the psalmist found the ability to wait, to endure, because he hoped in God. I'm not talking about a fatalistic resignation. It's about going about our lives confident, confident that God's promise, his, his word will provide us the meaning and the conclusion that we need. 
And so biblical hope is the opposite of, of desperate and panicky manipulations. It's, it's not about skirting and worrying. It, it gives us the grace to go long term in the same direction and to hang in there when the temptation is to give up and quit because life is too hard. So how do we get this hope? Now, each and every one of us so desperately needs. Paul gives us the answer, verse 5. Hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. And so hope is a gift. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of when the Holy Spirit comes in, when we fully surrender ourselves to His will and to His ways and let Him have our lives. Well, back to our movie. Schofield is standing on the bank of the river. He is weeping and he is feeling hopeless. Until he slowly manages to walk up the hill. And as he, as he walks up the hill, he begins to hear singing. It's an old gospel song called The Wayfaring Stranger. And it's being sung to the 2nd Battalion as they wait their turn to turn the call, to heed the call to battle. And at that moment, he realizes that he has not failed, that he has made it in time after all. He rediscovers hope. So maybe today you're feeling hopeless. Maybe you've lost hope in a relationship. Maybe you've lost hope in a marriage or in your child or in your job. Or maybe you're losing hope in your faith. Maybe you're feeling a call. Maybe you're feeling a, from a call from God to, to proclaim hope. Hope to your friends, to your neighbors, to, to your church and to this community. Maybe today, maybe today it's time to surrender our hopelessness to God. Maybe today... We allow the Holy Spirit to come in, to begin to move in our lives. Maybe today we begin to listen to what God wants to say. Let's pray. God, we are listening. Open our hearts and our minds to hear your word and then give us the grace to obey. God, today help us to hear your message of hope and not ever give up. Amen.